uh, one of the things that I've been asked to talk about is Jesus as the bread of life. Uh, in John chapter 6 and verse 35, uh, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. You come to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. When you think about those words, you recognize that's a pretty extraordinary claim. Uh, we may pass over it because we know Jesus said it and we know that's one of the I am statements in the book of John and therefore we sometimes uh, put it in the list and talk about how profound it is that Jesus uh, described himself in so many different ways in terms of his work. But what is Jesus telling, him, uh, telling us about himself, particularly as it might even pertain to the original audience, uh, when he says, I am the bread of life? We have to consider, I think, as well, the context of that statement, and that's always a good place to start when we're going to look at uh, understanding what God reveals in His Word, is to look at the context in which the statement is made, that which surrounds it, both immediately and even remotely from the standpoint of different Bible events and different Bible truth. You remember that these these particular statements are connected, as many of the uh, the I am statements in the book of John are connected, with a particular miracle. Uh, And Jesus made the claim that I am the uh, light of the world uh, when he healed the blind man. He raised Lazarus from the dead and then said, I am the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 6, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people with a small boy's lunch. And in following that miracle that was so astounding to those who were there, he said to his audience, I am the bread of life. That's not hard for us to see that connection between the miracle and the words themselves. But looking at John chapter 6, we're better able to understand not only what Jesus said, but as well why he said it. But one thing about this particular miracle is that this is one of those miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 as sometimes as we relate it, that's recorded in all four Gospels. And in the gospel accounts, though there are some differences uh, in, each one, in each one of the accounts, in those gospel accounts of this particular miracle, there is astounding similarity or congruence in terms of, uh, of what Jesus actually did and even the participation of those involved in it. But in one of those accounts, it tells us here uh, in the book of Mark and also in the book of John that there are two motivations that are presented. In Mark's account, in Mark chapter 6 and verse 34, it says that uh, he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep not having a shepherd, so he began to teach them many things. So Jesus is going to make the statement later on that I am the bread of life, and he's going to talk about what that means. In fact, we're going to notice that he mentions this, uses this particular image several times in the context of this miracle. Well, why did Jesus say he was the bread of life? Why use that image in terms of Uh, the motivation for the statement itself. Well, Mark 6 would connect the miracle with Jesus' assessment of the problem that he saw, that the miracle was in essence his response to looking out and seeing the people and seeing that they were like sheep that had no shepherd. So he looked at the people from the standpoint of the familiar image of a sheepfold and he said, where's the shepherd? Now, what did he mean by that? What was involved in looking at people and saying they need a shepherd? Well, to be shepherdless puts sheep in a very difficult position. It might mean that what Jesus saw, here are people that are vulnerable to predators on the outside, as a sheep would, sheepfold would be, that did not have a shepherd to guide them and to take care of them and to provide for them. Maybe he saw them as those you see who were wandering here and there without any real direction, because again, a flock of sheep without a shepherd would very much wander about, not knowing where to go. They would be scattered. 
And ultimately, I think we recognize that if sheep aren't cared for, a flock of sheep aren't cared for, then it's very likely they will die, that they will not be able to survive. Now, all of those things may be involved in what Jesus saw when he looked out at the people, but it mentions that when he saw them in that condition, he had compassion upon them. He wanted to do something for them to help the situation. Well, what did he do? Well, Jesus, it tells us in the text, so he began to teach them many things. And I want to hold on to that because we're going to, so I believe, we're going to notice how that connects to the rest of the event, particularly even what Jesus says about being the bread of life. But it seems early on here that what this text is alerting us to is that Jesus put an emphasis on the power of truth to solve the problems of the Israelite people. That those individuals that were to, to which he was teaching had needed to know more, that they needed truth in order to provide for them ultimately the satisfaction that they needed and the solution to their problems. So it points out, I think, as we begin this particular text and look at this particular miracle, it points out to us that Jesus was taking a different perspective than even his audience were, and maybe even many many who would look on were taking about Jesus. His own mission, and that was that Jesus was going to place emphasis and did place emphasis on the spiritual needs of the people above the physical needs. He wasn't saying that they were a sheep without shepherd; they were like sheep without shepherd because they needed somebody to feed them physically. Because that's not what he introduces here. Now he's going to feed them physically; he's going to provide food for them in a very astounding way. But what we're going to learn from this text is that Jesus does not say that they what they have need of is to be physically fed. Because immediately when he sees their situation, his compassion for them led them led him to begin to teach them things. And that becomes an important backdrop, I believe, to Jesus' claim to being the bread that would truly satisfy their needs. He was going to give them what they really needed. In chapter six and verse five, John chapter six, verses five and six, John gives us another insight into the motivation for Jesus' miracle. It says that Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. So when we look at the introduction to the miracle, Mark tells us that Jesus did this because he had compassion upon the people because he needed to provide them what they really needed. John would take it further and say what Jesus was doing in the miracle itself and even setting up the miracle, is that he was testing his disciples. It was a test. Was it a test of what they had to give? Was Jesus testing the disciples to see whether or not they brought enough food along? Was he talking about this aspect of their physical preparation for being out in the middle of nowhere? Or was it a test of faith that they would put their trust in Jesus to provide that he would be the one who would be able to give what they could not give themselves? Jesus and the disciples knew that they could not feed all these people who gathered on the side of the seashore. Recognize that the crowd was much too large. In one one account it tells us that they made the estimation that it would take 200 denarii worth of bread to feed all of these people. That translates into 8 months worth of salary would have to be dished out for them to be able to buy enough bread to feed all these people this single meal. Now that was an insurmountable task. And no doubt they recognized that. The question is, would they trust in Jesus to do what only He could do? Did it set the stage in their minds for a circumstance that would demand a miracle? Well, what was accomplished in the miracle? That's an important consideration from the standpoint of what Jesus actually did 
when he fed 5,000 people with just a few fish and a few loaves? Was it just the idea that Jesus was going to feed them and that this was really a glorified catering job? You know, you go and you got a lot of people in the house, you got a lot of people in, uh, in one occasion. How are you going to feed all these people? Well, you, sometimes you could go out and hire somebody and they would prepare a meal and you'd cater to the event or maybe you'd just get together and you'd, everybody would pitch in a little bit and we'd be able to get by. Was this just a glorified catering job? I remember some years ago, maybe I've mentioned this before, one of my lessons, that um, when, I was in, when I was growing up in Cincinnati, there was a very large denominational church there uh, that put on a lot of different programs. And one Sunday they decided and announced that they were going to feed 5,000 people because they would have upwards of 5,000 people in single assembly. So they advertised they were going to feed 5,000 people uh, fish dinner. Uh, and it made, made it appear, I suppose, from the advertisement that this reflected Jesus' miraculous ability to feed 5,000 people. The interesting connection to that is my older brother Mike worked at a Burger Chef restaurant there in town and they ordered all those sandwiches from Burger Chef and he was up all hours of the night making 5,000 fish sandwiches so that they could pass them out to the people. And I asked Mike, you, you realize you were, you were involved in a, a feeding of 5,000 people? <laughs> it wasn't the same thing. That was just a catering job. Jesus' miracle was more than that. He satisfied their physical needs, but that's not what it was all about. And yet understanding that Jesus satisfied their needs, completely satisfied their need for physical food on that occasion, is not only inherent in the story, it's an integral element of the lesson that's being taught. So Jesus had them sit down, he instructed the disciple to distribute the young boy's lunch. It says in the text, as far as it would go, in John chapter 6, verse 11, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, the disciples uh, to, to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, uh, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by, which they, uh, by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now, what I want us to notice is that Jesus didn't do a halfway job of this. When he was testing the disciples of whether or not they would have enough food to feed all of these people, he clearly uh, had in mind that he was going to do this, and he was going to do it, you see, uh, just as much as it needed to be done. He wasn't going to give everybody just a little bit. He was going to make a point about all of this. And so... He gave enough, or he provided enough, that everybody had all that they wanted and there was more left over. Now, at the end of all that, what was that to say or what did it say about how this thing was accomplished, that Jesus was absolutely in control, that there was no way the small amount of food could satisfy all of these people's needs without God's intervention, without, his inter without, without Him taking control of the circumstance. So as that food was distributed by the disciples, there was obviously something going on beyond just the ability of feeding a few people a little bit. God's ability to do what, with something physical what was humanly impossible is an important theme in biblical text. And certainly it comes out in this particular miracle that Jesus took a little bit and made a lot but there was more to it than just the aspect of the amount. 
God's ability to use what was humanly insufficient to accomplish His purposes is a major theme and trademark of redemptive history. God does it over and over and over again. He takes that which is physically recognizable by us as being weak and insufficient and then He uses that as the element by which He will do that which we could not do for ourselves nor we could ever imagine could be done. In Hebrew chapter 2 and verse 14... The writer of Hebrews says, And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. How will God take care of the problem of death? How will he solve that insurmountable problem? By dying. You see how ridiculous that sounds? That God would overthrow death by death itself. That He would take that which is representative of the very problem itself. The weakness that's involved. And He would take that weakness and by His intervention it would be the death of Jesus that would overcome death. Now, fully connected with that is the resurrection. Jesus' death cannot be separated from the fact of His resurrection. But I want us to see that over and over again God takes that which we recognize to be weak and through it accomplishes His own purposes. So when the disciples looked at that lunch, they said, this is not enough. Well, that's what you would say, wouldn't it? This is not enough. And yet he took that which was not enough, and through his power it became more than enough. So Jesus satisfied all of their needs. This miracle excited Jesus' followers so much that they decided to take him at that moment and make him king. Chapter 6 and verse 15. And Jesus You see, he exited out of that picture. He took himself out of that by going away. Because that's not what it was about. And we'll talk about that as the lesson progresses. But recognize that they were viewing this from the standpoint of here was someone who could take what was nothing and make something out of it. Make everything out of it. Another accomplishment of this miracle is that Jesus made a distinction between the physical and the spiritual bread. The following day after they found Jesus on the opposite side of the lake, you see he immediately addresses, the, addresses their carnal motivations. They followed him because they wanted to be fed again. And Jesus understood that in chapter 6 verse 26 Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the sign but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. They had been satisfied so they want to be satisfied again. He says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because the God the Father has set His seal on Him. Now what I want to notice is that this encounter between Jesus and the disciples, uh, the multitude on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, after the miracle the day before, presents this element that's integral to the story, and that is these folks were hungry again. He fed them to their full more than they needed. But now they were seeking Him again so that He could do it all over again. He could feed them again. Now, that's an important, as I mentioned, that's an important concept. And so Jesus draws a distinction here. The distinction is between the food that perishes and the food that endures. You put your effort into acquiring something, acquiring food that endures to everlasting life, then you have something. If you put all of your effort into acquiring food that perishes then you're going to be hungry again and it's going to perish. You know, that's the interesting thing about food, isn't it? About the idea of physical food. It's such an inherent need that we have and yet we recognize that it doesn't stick around. You look at the story, I think the other backdrop to this story, of course, is the manna event in the wilderness when God 
fed the Israelites with manna out of heaven because they were uh, without provision in the middle, out in the middle of the wilderness and they, uh, they were murmuring and God sent manna from heaven to feed them. They understood that from their history. In fact, they relate that to this event and said, you know, Moses fed us manna from heaven. Are you going to feed us this way? But the identical part of that manna story was that they could not gather it You see, on the Sabbath day, they had to gather it on the sixth day, and then they were not to gather it on the seventh day. And if they gathered it, you see, uh, 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 and they tried to store it in their homes, if they tried to gather more than one day they needed for that day, what happened to the food that they tried to store? It rotted. It rotted. It perished. So is there a lesson there that you can't store this stuff up? You can't provide for yourself in a physical way, anything that will last beyond a certain amount of time because the need's going to arise again and you're not going to be insufficient again. And one of the ironies of that is the fresher the bread, the easier it spoils. <laughs> you know, you put the, they put preservatives in it now and you can get a loaf of bread to last a week or so, but you go bake some fresh bread and you don't eat it right away. It perishes, it spoils. Now, these words then are compelling for us. The idea that there is spiritual food that lasts forever, there is physical food that perishes. How much time do we spend pursuing that which truly spiritually satisfies? Well, I want to make some, before we maybe look at the particular application of Jesus' words, I am the bread of life, to make some connection to consider. And I, I think I've mentioned these before in the context of John, of John chapter 6, that there are connections between the Old Testament and New, Old Testament and New Testament that not, I think are not only just interesting and intriguing, but they are also intended. They are things that we ought to be able to see and bring together to give us a fuller understanding of what the teaching of the New Testament is. And that's certainly, I think, in view here. Jesus used the word bread 13 times in John chapter 6. So the word bread itself, the concept and the image of bread is essential to our understanding of what he's teaching here. He wants them to understand the image of bread. And and I think there are some things about bread as it's related to in the text of the the rest of the Bible that would help help us as it helped them. One is the aspect of the first time that bread is mentioned in the Bible. And that is Genesis chapter 3. Then God said to Adam, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I command you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. Until you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, to dust you shall return. As I mentioned, it's the first time bread that's mentioned in the Bible. And the context is that God is placing a curse upon Adam and upon Adam's uh, those who would follow, uh, in, in, you see, in, in Adam's uh, genealogy, uh, that would even be you and I, that this world... Uh, is a place of uh, toil and trouble from the standpoint of ac- uh, the acquisition of bread. How many times a day do you need to eat? Do you need to eat every day? Is this an ongoing compelling need that you have? How will it be that you will eat, you will uh, uh, take care of yourself and satisfy that need? Well, what God told Adam is that uh, that this earth is going to bring forth thorns and thistles and it's going to make difficult this process of you being able to acquire food for yourself. And so by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Can you relate to that? By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. God made a provision for Adam and Eve 
to have everything they needed physically in the garden, but their willingness to sin interfered with all of that, and man sabotaged his own physical satisfaction through the desire to fulfill those those for the willingness to fulfill those desires in sinful ways. I believe that one way that bread ought to be considered is the constant struggle between the spiritual and the physical. That physical food that perishes and food that does not perish. We need bread. We need physical food and sustenance. And this recurring physical need, you see, competes with our attention and struggles for the spiritual bread that God would want us to have in our life. A struggle between the flesh and the spirit, as the Bible presents it. The inability of Adam's descendants to provide for their physical needs was intended to emphasize a greater need that they had that they could not provide. So you struggle to work. God wants you to see something in that. You struggle to provide for yourself. There's a lesson for that. Because you cannot provide what you really need. Only God can do that. And then there's this aspect of the test of being hungry. And that says Deuteronomy 81. That's, there is no Deuteronomy 81. That's Deuteronomy 8 verse 1. And God said this. He said, Every commandment which I command you today, you shall be, should be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way those forty years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. So He humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with the manna from which you did not know nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now this is an event in the history of Israel that certainly would have been very well known, that God for 40 years sustained the children of Israel in the wilderness by the provision, as we mentioned before, of manna that came down from heaven. Moses here explains that God's intentions was not just to physically feed Israel, but rather that he was allowing Israel to struggle in the wilderness to actually go hungry so it, that he could test them. You remember that's what Jesus, what, what John tells us about Jesus' miracle in John chapter 6. That the idea of being physically hungry and the inability to supply yourself with food that you need is a test. And it's interesting to, say, to recognize that in a general sense. That God creates hunger for bread. He provides physical bread to temporarily satisfy that hunger. All as a way for us to recognize our inability to satisfy our real needs. And later in the midst of his own tests, in the wilderness driven there by the Spirit, Jesus was hungry. And Satan came to him and said, take these stones and turn them into bread. And you remember Jesus' response? He goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I would submit to you that Jesus was making an accurate and proper application of Deuteronomy chapter 8 to the circumstances of his own temptation. That man does not live by bread alone. And though he was experiencing enormous physical hunger, and, and there was a way in which he could satisfy that hunger, if it involved the aspect of fall, failing in his allegiance to God, he could not do that because man does not live by bread alone. And that takes us, I think, to the last element, and that's the profane choice of Esau. This again, this event again reminds me of this principle of the aspect of bread and the test that bread presents. Esau comes in from the field and he's really hungry. And Jacob then played on that intense hunger and deceived him. And he ultimately Jacob made a test for his brother. 
Esau said, look, I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? And Jacob said to him, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and a stew of lentils that he had eaten and drunk a rose, and he went on his way. And Esau despised his birthright. You remember that story? That Esau sold his connection to the promises of Abraham, his linkage to the aspect of the blessings of God for his family for a bowl of stew. We think shame on him. He should have known better than that. And he should have. But you see, this is the ongoing test over and over again that repeats itself in the pages of the Scriptures where what is presented to us is a choice of whether or not we will accept spiritual food that only God can give that satisfies ultimately or whether we'll accept a very inferior substitute in the physical things of life. The writer of Hebrews calls, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, calls Esau, Esau a profane person. That's what profanity is all about. It's not saying an illicit word, though that may be involved in the aspect of an element of profanity. Profanity, as it's described in scriptures, is choosing that which is physical over that which is spiritual. Of choosing that which is not ultimately God's superior blessing. And so that those things, I think, help us to better understand what Jesus says when he says, I am the bread of life. What is he claiming in this statement? Well, certainly he was claiming, I believe, to be God. Over and over in the, in the text of these statements where he uses the word bread so many times and connects it to himself, he says that this is the bread that comes down out of heaven. Again, the image is the manna falling from heaven. The Jews would have picked up on that right away, and they did. But when Jesus says, I am the bread come down out of heaven, He's certainly making known to them that He's not just a man. That He is God Himself who has come down out of heaven. In chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He that comes to Me shall never hunger, and he believes in Me shall never thirst. In verse 41, He says, I am the bread of life which came down from heaven. In verse 51, He says it again, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is My flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And then in verse 58, He says, This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna, and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. So Jesus claims to be the bread. The bread that comes down from heaven. The bread that satisfies eternally and always. He is the food that does not perish. If you eat this bread, you will never hunger again. It will provide eternal and never-ending life. That's pretty fascinating, isn't it? You think when the per- people heard that for the first time, when that was ringing in their ears and they were remembering from their history God providing for the physical needs of their ancestors, they didn't get excited about all of that? Everything that encompassed the struggle of their life was related to the fact that they could not adequately feed themselves, nor their children, their grandchildren, or as a nation would sustain themselves. Someone comes along and says, I can give you all of that forever, all time. You'll never thirst, you'll never hunger again. They were excited about that. And when he told them he could do that in chapter 6 and verse 33 and verse 34, they said, give it to us. We want it. Give it to us. But they were still thinking about their stomachs, weren't they? They were still thinking about what he could provide for them physically. So how could you get this bread of life? Ultimately, what was the end of the lesson 
How could they possibly be able to acquire food that would not perish to which they would never have to thung, uh, hunger or thirst again? Let me suggest to you a couple of things as we close the lesson. I believe that what the Scriptures teach is that Jesus satisfies our needs and being the bread of life through His words. As with physical bread, the bread of life imparts when it's eaten. It provides nourishment when it's ingested, when it's taken in. And Jesus told the crowd that His flesh was the bread, that they must eat His flesh. John chapter 6 and verse 52. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Jesus takes it further and I believe amplifies the whole illustration of the aspect of the bread of life by including not only His physical body but His blood and says, you eat My flesh, you drink My blood and when you do that, I abide in you and you abide in Me. Now Jesus isn't talking about cannibalism here and they, they perplex by that and they recognize He's not saying we should eat your flesh and drink your physical blood. So how can one eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood? Well, not literally, but he eats and drinks, you see, of his blood when he receives and digests what, God's, what Jesus is saying. When he abides in Jesus' teaching and associates himself with Jesus, this life-giving ability that Jesus offered is connected with what he was teaching. That goes back to what we said earlier. He had compassion on them, so he began to teach them things. In John chapter 6 and verse 45, Jesus says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. He's talking about coming and eating his flesh, and then he says, The only way you can come to me is if you're taught by the Father. Well, the Father was teaching them through the Old Testament Scriptures who Jesus was, and who the Messiah was, and the fact that he would not provide physical food, but spiritual food, and that Jesus would be the one, the Messiah would be the one through that it would come. And so Jesus says, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you, unless you see who I am in the Old Testament Scriptures and you're led to follow me by, by adhering to what I teach. You're not my true disciple. If you're just here to get a meal, that's not it. See? And that's what Jesus was teaching them. In chapter 6, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are the Spirit, and they are the life. So how is a person to get this eternal life, this endless life, through the bread of life? Through the words of God. Now this particular lesson proved to be a turning point for many of the disciples. It tells us in verse 66 of, the, of John chapter 6 that from that time many of the disciples went back and walked with Him no more. They were turning around and going the other way. Maybe they didn't understand it. Maybe they're unwilling to accept ultimately the, the implications of it. But they want nothing else to do with Jesus. And they're walking away. It became a test even for the closest disciples. This bread thing was a test. In chapter 6 and verse 67... Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Underscore that. Underline that in your Bible. Peter gets it, doesn't he? There are a whole bunch of people that don't get it and they're walking away because they're still hungering and thirsting for something that's physical. But what Peter ascertains from all of this is that what you're talking about is the spiritual food that's provided for your words. By your words, where else are we going to get that? 
These are the words of life that you have. And we know that because we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was hungering and thirsting for a closer relationship with God. He recognized a need that he could not fulfill in any other way other than to come to Christ and believe on Him. And he knew that Jesus' words were the answer to that need. Nothing else would satisfy. Let me point out what I think is a, 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 a pointed irony in this particular event. There are some today who attempt to use this event, the fact that Jesus fed all these people, that He would provide a lunch for everybody there. They try to use this event as evidence the church has a responsibility to feed the community and that general benevolence is a means whereby we should go out and reach the lost by feeding them. If we can feed them first, then we can teach them later. And they bring up this particular particular event as evidence for that. I find that highly ironic because that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is teaching here. The distinction Jesus is making is that there is not found in the element of physical food. That true sustenance is spiritual food that comes with His words. He was contrasting the insufficiency of one bread over the total sufficiency of the other bread. The inspired Word of God is sufficient to do His purposes. Churches nor individuals need to entice individuals to become spiritual people by providing physical food. That doesn't mean we can't fellowship or should not. I have responsibility to be hospitable and provide for the needs of others. But recognize that anything that comes in contrast with the fact that the inspired Word of God is sufficient to make a person absolutely complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work is not the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's something else. So Jesus satisfies our need through His words. He also provides satisfaction through His blood. Notice chapter 6, verse 51. The bread which I give you is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The bread of life is His flesh. And that flesh, He says, would be given for them. Now that doesn't happen for a little while. But certainly what we recognize in looking back at biblical text is that provision is spiritual, not physical. It's not just the physical body of Jesus that's in view, but rather the shedding of His blood and the atonement that's given for the price of sin. What you need to satisfy the problem of sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will do. And without it, you and I will spiritually die. Colossians chapter 1, Paul there says that you were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless above reproach. So God was willing to step in and provide the atonement for your sin, the propitiation, the payment for my sin, so that I might be right and approved in the sight of God, that I might have full fellowship and be reconciled. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says there, you were far off, you brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. He Himself is in our peace. He's abolished the, uh, abolished the enmity in His flesh, Paul says. Now that was emphasis on the physical sacrifice of Jesus. There were those who denied that God could ever die in the flesh. And from that arose all types of heretical teachings. And Paul, I think, is, at least in Ephesians, maybe uh, heading that off by saying, look, you can't deny that Jesus died in the flesh, that He gave a physical body, because that's the very element by which you see the spiritual blessings of God come. 
It's often asked in this particular text as we talk about Jesus saying you must eat my flesh and drink my blood in order to have life in you. It's often asked if Jesus is referring to the Lord's Supper that we just spoke of, that we just took place, uh, participated in a few moments ago. Is that what Jesus is talking about when he says you must eat my flesh and drink my blood? Well, certainly the Lord's Supper, uh, from the standpoint of the elements involved, contained those two things. They contain fruit of the vine, which represents the blood of Jesus, the blood of the covenant. And they, take, they contain unleavened bread, which represents the body of Jesus. Jesus gave them that very significance following the Passover meal that we're studying about even in our Wednesday evening study. But the Lord's Supper as such had not yet been commanded, not yet been instituted as we say, at the time in which Jesus makes these comments in John chapter 6. That wasn't until later on that he took it during the Passover that he took those particular elements and gave them that significance. But I would suggest to you that I don't totally erase from my mind the idea of the Lord's Supper when I read through these passages. The event that it would that the Lord's Supper points to was clearly in view. That that's precisely what Jesus is talking about in in premonition tone. That I will give you, I will give my flesh for you, and I will die for you, and therefore you will have everything that you need. The provision that God would provide for His people rests fully upon the efficacy of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross in His resurrection from the dead. So when I would take of that memorial feast as we did just a few moments ago, what I recognize in taking of that feast is I'm under a covenant by the blood of Jesus Christ that says to me in every way that everything that I need to be right before God is sufficiently found in Christ and Christ alone. That there is no human institution, no religious organization, there's no creeds of men, there's no more teaching of the church, there is no ritual or rite that provides any of the aspect of the satisfaction of my spiritual need. All of that is in Christ alone. Are you hungry? Well, the preachers preach long enough that you might be. But I ask that question from the standpoint, are you spiritually hungry? And if you recognize there is a yearning within yourself to have a closer relationship with your Creator, if you recognize that this world does not provide true elements of fulfillment in the life that you live, if you recognize when you look at the aspect of the imposition, the certain imposition of death that makes the prize of vanity, everything that we experience in this world, if there is nothing beyond, then what is there? And you yearn for that which goes beyond the physical of this life, for something that would be eternal and everlasting, where will you go to find it? Where can it be found? Peter's, you see, words ring in our ears. To whom shall we go? Jesus answers that when he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, never hunger and never thirst. The sweat of your face can provide physical bread, but that bread perishes. The hard work you engender in, the human ingenuity that you're able to have in your own life, everything that we're able to accomplish on the face of this earth by our own reason, by our own philosophy, by our own intellect, all of that will disappear at the end. And the only thing that will remain is the Word of God and His people. And that's why the bread of life is everlasting. Why the bread of life Jesus provides and that Jesus is is absolutely essential. We come to Him, listen to His words, associate 
with the sacrifice of His blood. As Jesus died, you died to sin. As Jesus was buried, you're buried in water. And as Jesus resurrected, you'll resurrect to newness of life if you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. While we stand and while we sing.